This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Sablaki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tom, what do we got? Well, today we're going to be looking at um, individuals who turned their back or stabbed their country or other individuals in the back. We'll be looking at some of the worst traitors in history. So what you have to understand about when it comes to like, traitors is that um, there's a lot of factors that are determined when you're looking at traitors, because some places traitors are seen as heroes, others are seen as traitors. So like... Um, yep. That's kind of what you'll find a lot. Like, for example, like Benedict Arnold will also be talking about him. You, he's infamous in American history. In Britain, they don't even talk about him. He's like, yep. he's, it's, it's, he's, not, he's not even a footnote. They won't even, most British people won't even know who Benedict Arnold is. So look at some, you know, infamous, some traitor, traitors who are infamous for their deeds. And their names have kind of become synonymous with treachery and, and uh, stabbing the back, basically. Yep. And as you mentioned, I mean, uh, Benedict Arnold has become part of the vernacular. I mean... Like you're such a Benedict Arnold. Like my students would say that. Oh, yeah. And some of them, this is kind of, I, I don't know if this is a testament on, on my inability to teach or not, but I'm like, do you even know anything about Benedict Arnold? And they're like, no. Well, oh, just, wow. I, I saw this. What? I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously we talked about this before. I, I grew up loving pro wrestling. Whenever like someone like attacked someone in the back or like a tag team broke up and they attacked each other, they were always like, oh, Benedict Arnold. You know, they would always say that. But what I found here is that there was actually when um, LeBron James I don't know if you saw this piece. Yeah, I saw that. Some people consider a traitor. The Cavs owner, Dan Gilbert, actually, um, he put on, after he um, he left the Cavs the first time and went to the Heat, um, people were calling him a traitor and stuff like that. He actually lowered all the um, life-size like cu- cardboard cutouts of LeBron James to $17.41. And that was the year Benedict Arnold was born. He did that purposely. That's that's some so, symbolism right there, so, man. Yeah, funny. right? I mean, yeah. So he was just, you know, there's another how Ben Arnold is just part of American culture and also tying in there with uh, with DeBron yeah. James a little bit there. Yeah. Like as we start going through these, right, we don't have many, but some of these names are definitely going to be familiar to you guys. I mean, some, some mm-hmm. like we said, that just transcend and, and really symbolize the idea of just being a traitor or backstabber. And, and you're going to recognize some of these. And some of these you may not recognize as much. I mean, some of the stuff I, I like, I really didn't know much about. And I was like, wow, this guy's really messed up or these people are really messed up. I know these guys and, I, and I'd never heard of these guys kind of thing. Yeah, a lot of the modern ones too. People usually don't really hear heard of, but like the modern ones are like really modern and really did a lot. Like, yeah, the Robert Hansen, right? I'm sure we'll get to yeah. Robert Hansen. Let's start. Um, I guess there's a bunch of. Let's start. Um, I'm gonna start ancient Greece. All right, this is one people should know about. I'm old sure school, we heard about school. this in a little bit. Old school, right? But a lot of these are military history ones. Like yep. they deal deal with a um, a battle or an event. Um, and what happens is a lot of times that these turncoats. Um, even when they, they turn their back on their home country, whatever, and then the country they turn their back for, a lot of times they don't like them either because they're like, well, you turn their back on your own people. How can we trust you? But one of them that um, is synonymous that people that you've probably heard of, Ephiartes. Ephiartes is written about by, you know, the historian, right, Herodotus. And it basically says how he betrayed the Greeks at the Battle of Thermopylae, which is, if you ever, uh, if you know Greek culture, right, the uh, Persian Wars, this goes back uh, with the. Uh, 300 Spartans at the hot gates of Thermopylae stopping the giant Persian Empire, right? The movie 300 really fictionizes this anyway. But yeah, they're showing us he wasn't like a hunchback like in the movie. Basically, he shows the Persians this goat trail that goes around the Greek position and encircles the Greeks. That's when the other Greeks uh, leave and then the 300 Spartans stay back. He betrays them. He expects to get paid very handsomely for this. He expects to be um, treated like a king in the Persian culture. 
actually none of that actually happened, especially when the Persians lose. Um, he winds up getting killed actually later on, um, something totally unrelated. But there was a bounty up for his head, and the guy who killed him actually winds up getting a reward, but didn't even know that he actually killed. But just to give an idea of how we talked about before, like with Arnold in U.S. history, um, Ephiardi's name in Greek actually becomes nightmare. That's what Ephiardi's means because of like what he did at Demopoli. So let's kind of stick around, I guess, in the older times, and, and let's talk about Julius Caesar's right uh, oh, assassination. Caesar's. I mean, this one, this is a big one. Marcus Brutus. The story here is very interesting. Obviously, we're talking about like 44 BC. What ultimately is happening is Julius Caesar, everyone's heard of Caesar, uh, sends to power because of a bunch of political gridlock, civil wars in the Roman Republic. And he kind of starts this, this reign that basically threatens the Republic because he bypasses the Senate on all important matters, controls the treasury, and basically earns the loyalty of the Republic's army because he pledges them property, public lands, personal fortune, so on and so forth. And he kind of embezzles his own image on coins, reserves the right to accept or reject election results, lower court, lower offices. Julius Caesar is basically, I think of it as, as like a military, I don't want to say dictator, but kind of, right? He's um, a general, a general leader, military. Yeah. And I mean, he leader. did proclaim himself the dictator for life. So I mean, like, kind of like, I mean, you know, he called himself that. However, it, his life really didn't last that much longer. So a lot of people, specifically in the Republic, you know, were afraid of this concentration of absolute power that a single man would have. And they thought that that would somehow threaten democratic institutions, which obviously would. So these senators who called themselves the liberators uh, decided to fetch a plot, basically, to kill him. So on March 15th in 44 BC, Caesar is stabbed 23 times by conspirators that believed themselves to be like the saviors of Roman democracy. What's interesting is the guy that kind of planned this is Marcus Brutus. And he actually loved Caesar. And he was just convinced. Yeah, they were friends, yeah. Yeah, they were friends. And he's convinced that Caesar is betraying and destroying the Republic. And, and he had this honor to the Republic. So Cassius wrote this emotional letter, like manipulation that he, to Brutus, that Brutus had this sense of duty that he, he had to preserve the Republic over Caesar, he sends these fake letters that outline, supposedly outline, people's support for Caesar's death. So Brutus thinks that the people, the, the Roman people, actually want Caesar dead, which is not true. Um, he was widely popular. Exactly. He was widely popular. And and Brutus is like, you know what? I need to do this for the Republic. And, and he's the one that kind of plans and leads this group of senators that stab him um, on the Senate floor. And what's really surprising to him is like, as soon as this is over... As a, you know, he had this speech ready that he was going to deliver to like the Roman Republic to restore the right. Um, and meanwhile, he's he's like shocked of the outrage and anger that he's getting over the fact that he just killed Caesar, as opposed to peace and reestablishment of the glory of the Republic. Um, you actually have Caesar's supporters are battling the assassins, and then they start battling each other. And yeah, the civil then, war, civil war. Like M Mark Anthony, who's Caesar's general, positions himself to take over. But then Caesar actually named his sick great nephew Octavian the heir, and then those guys fight. I mean, this is this was a Brutus did a did a thing that actually did not help the Republic; it destroyed the Republic. So he is considered. Uh, one of the biggest traitors in world history. Yeah, and history actually views him like that too. Um, I saw that um, Dante thought of that treachery so intensely that he put the, he put um, both of those guys, Brutus and Cassius, into um, the lowest level of hell in his inferno. Like they're Nuts, sort of right there, Brutus. So yeah, That's it's crazy. definitely one. It's one that again people probably heard of. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would think so. Yeah, yeah everyone knows of. Uh, All right, you want to stick with the old, olden stuff? Yeah, we might as well stick with some old. I mean, you want to go, you want to go Judas and get that one out of the way. Yeah, go ahead. Just go ahead and talk Judas. Go ahead. Judas. This is interesting because obviously we're talking about Jesus, right? And and we're not speaking about Jesus in in terms of Christianity at this point. We're speaking in terms of Jesus, the man who lived in Judea at a certain particular time. Historians do agree that this person lived, really was crucified, and he was given up by this particular person. He supposedly paid, know? yeah, what, 30, 30 pieces of silver for this, right? That's what it was, right? So, And the way it worked out is you had him betrayed, really, with a kiss. You, I'm sure a lot of people know this. I mean, if you study scripture, Christian scripture or not, but well, we, we don't know much about Judas, by the way. However, it's so synonymous. It was like, you know, if you're a Judas, like you're backstabbing, you are a traitor. You know, this is like the, in Christian world, this is the name yeah, everywhere. You, you, some, Judas. Yeah. you call someone a Judas, that's implied that you're, you're a traitor. Can't be trusted. You're a traitor, stabbing people in the back and stuff like that. Although there is some scrolls I saw that were recently I found that yep. they're saying that. I remember hearing about this too. Pretty, it's very recent, like in 2014 or something like that, right? Yep. Maybe even a little earlier. But it was um, talking about how basically Jesus had to convince him. To, he was telling you, you have to betray me. You yep. need to do it in order for, you know, what was going to happen. Like either Jesus knew it was going to happen and stuff like that. Yep. And that's become very controversial um, yep. either way. But yeah, it wasn't that long ago at all. So there's been some revision to his story, but yet a lot of people are still just saying, no, no, uh, it doesn't, it's not going to change the fact that Western culture as a whole, everything Christianity basically sees Judas as this traitor. Right? Yep. He, he, turned, he turned on Jesus. But yep. you have that in a lot of other places. Like I'm sure you saw this one. Um, Jin Hu, right, the Song Dynasty, 12th century China, betrayed the emperor. When Yu Fei tried to conquer the territory and reinstall the emperor to the throne, Kun He stopped him and then had this, this general executed, right? And then for this, Qin Hu was um, basically regarded as a traitor in China. But what's interesting about why I bring this one up is that there's actually these two statues of him and his wife on their knees and bound behind. They're from the like 1155, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they have them behind this gate and they actually have to put like, they, they're thinking about putting like it behind these like uh, plastic or like uh, clear glass because people keep on spitting on them even to wow. this day. That's what people, you go and see them. And these are like history, you know. Yeah, it goes with a story that's obviously a very important part of Chinese history, but it also has this, um, you know, they're from the, they're from 1100 BC, right? 1100 um, AD. So they're like these nice works of art, basically. And people just walk by and spit on them because they're still seen as like a traitor. So that, that's kind of like their version of like the um, Chinese version of Benedict Arnold. And I have a friend of mine who's actually been to China. I remember him telling tell about this. Yeah, it's like people just walk by and they just spit on it. Like they spit on it. They just like, and it's like hatred spit. They curse at them still to this day. And that's the crazy part that like these these things stay to this day. If right? if, um, if Benedict Arnold's grave was in the United States, I'm sure that would happen. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but I'm sure that would happen. <laughs> happen. Perfect segue because interesting because again, we're speaking from an American standpoint. When you're like, oh, this is like the you know China's Benedict Arnold. So like, let's get to American Benedict Arnold. A lot has been known. He's a traitor. Yeah. <laughs> He's a traitor. <laughs> gets me How gets me fired up. So Benedict Arnold, basically, just so we know, he was an international merchant, very financially successful, but then the British imposed taxes. He basically loses his successful business. And then he joins the Sons of Liberty, eventually becomes a general in the Continental Army under George Washington. Good general. He's a good general. And it's we have to give him credit there. Like, this guy's a good general. Quite frankly, he actually has more victories than our own George Washington. Yeah. And that actually starts this whole fall. That's what bothers him. Yeah, yeah this is the, the fall. He's a very jealous person. Yeah. Super jealous. So two things. He's jealous of the fact that George Washington's getting all the credit for a lot of these battles because George Washington is the commander of all the armies. Meanwhile, 
uh, Benny Carlos just won general, but he's the only one that's actually winning at this point. And another thing is Peggy Shippen, his his wife apparently is a huge spender and actually puts them in a lot of debt. So he needs money. He's also not happy that he's not getting the recognition and he's passed up for a promotion. And that kind of becomes like the last straw. So he gets hurt in battle and has a terrible limp and can't really ride horses right now. He needs to recuperate. So the Continental Army puts him and appoints him rather to run West Point, um, which is obviously a key military position to the Revolutionary War. It is not yet West Point Academy, that we know today that trains officers. That, that, yeah, yeah th that happens under Thomas Jefferson later on. But um, right now it's just a military position that basically protects um, New York. I mean, this is the gateway into New York. So, um, or rather I should say New York State, I mean, to be specific. So anyway, what Arnold does is he betrays America. He offers the plans to this key military position, um, all the location, the armament stores, war secrets, everything about he can about, key, um, about West Point. He gives us to the British for an amount that would equate to approximately $3 million today, which, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. The plot is intercepted in 1780, and Arnold very quickly, this is, you know, remember, at this time he's a known American general, quickly convinced of treason. It's basically his name is erased from military records. He's demoted. And back then, if you are convicted of treason, like you're dying, you're going to hang you in a tree. He flees to the British sides, and he becomes a brigadier general for the British. Uh, while he basically commands a unit of loyalists, other people that betrayed the United States. And um, he fights against Americans, even though he's American. Well, if we could he call it down, He burns down a whole village, I believe, right? Before he eventually moves to London. That's the key, right? So eventually he... Well, once the war is over, yeah, because he knows yeah. he's... In, they didn't well, he like him there him. either. Yeah. No, no, they saw him as a... They literally saw him as a traitor. They're like, dude... And he's like, I did this for you, the, the British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, no, we don't trust you. Yeah, we don't trust you. But I really yeah. what sold them out too was when, um, or heard them a lot too, was when um, Franklin, Ben Franklin says, if, you know, basically comparing him to Judas, he says, Judas sold only one man, Arnold, three million. And once that, once Franklin says that, that also like an American culture just destroys Benedict Arnold. That's why his name is just synonymous with a traitor. He's in all the history books. Yeah, like New York talk about Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold did he have any real, real major thing in history? Not really. If you think about it, but it just shows you someone that betrayed the cause. So that's it. Yeah, you know? it's interesting how we just tied Judas with it. You know, like Ben Franklin. I didn't. We, we didn't. Ben Franklin did. But yeah, see, uh, Ben mm -hmm. Franklin. That's what I ben said. Franklin not, works he knew, for us, right? He knew who he was talking about. So all right, so we covered the biggest one, I guess. Oh, I, I mean, one of the biggest ones. One of the biggest. Ones. America. You to, yeah. You want to talk about um, Robert Ford and Jesse James? Yeah, so Jesse James Gank, that's basically where we're starting here. Um, Which we did a podcast on. Didn't we do Jesse James? No, I think we did Real we Wild did. West. and I think We, we did Billy the Kid. About. I don't know we talked about that's Jesse That's what we James, did. Yeah. I don't know. We, we're, we're, we're getting close to 100 episodes. I, I don't, I'm like forgetting what they we all, did. Already. They all blurred. Yeah, they blurred together. Right. But anyway, um, yeah, so Jesse James. Jesse James. Which was one of the most infamous American outlaws, right? But yeah, that's right. But the man who shot him is talked about too. Basically, uh, you have Jesse James and, and his brother started robbing banks. This is like 1860s in Missouri, to be specific. Uh, late 1860s and early 1870s. It robs a couple of banks a year. And that's pretty much, you know, it's a low profile kind of gang. But, but when they do rob a bank, it's like a big deal and it's a big job. And then in 1870s, they got into a train robbery game and it started robbing trains. 
And then that is essentially what brings about the Pickenter Detective Agency after him. And that's when Jesse's gang and Jesse James becomes kind of like infamous once they start robbing these trains. And it was also in one of these terrible attempts where they kill a couple of people. And that's when Jesse James becomes a wanted man. So after these mur- this murder, he kind of retires and spends a quiet years farming. And, and while Jesse's doing that, he's like, you know what? He's, he's kind of itching for a new gang. So he starts to organize a new gang. And one of the people that he organizes is Robert Ford and his brother, Charlie. Um, they're on the fringe. They're not really part of the gang, but they're kind of part of the gang. And they did not really like Jesse. So on April 3rd, Right, we're looking at 1876. Jesse's mom is making breakfast. As the new gang is is meeting there to hear Jesse's plan for the new robbery when he's starting his new gang, and as he turns his back to adjust a picture on the wall, basically Robert Ford gets up and shoots him several times in the back. And, and he it does becomes, this for the reward, right? He for the reward, yeah, he the, wants money. This, like he, the governor, the Missouri governor, put a ten thousand dollar price on his head, which is a lot of money, and then Ford expected it to be like a. Um, we thought he was going to be a hero, hero for this. A hero for this, and he was also promised, I believe, by the governor that um, all their crimes would be pardoned if he did something like this. So, I mean, he shoots um, James, yeah. but didn't, again, just like Benedict Arnold, doesn't really go as he hoped, right? No, of course not. I mean, even a tombstone reads: Jesse W. James died April third, eighteen eighty-two, aged thirty-four, six months, twenty-eight days, murdered by a traitor and a coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. Like, He's an outlaw. Well, the outlaws getting more credit than the guy who killed them. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of. Uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. So let's think, think about that for a second. Yeah. Crazy. Whatever happened to uh, Ford? I know it didn't. Well, basically what happens uh, is he didn't basically someone just. Shoot him? He, someone shot him, right? Eventually, yeah, he becomes labeled a coward and he becomes a drifter. Like he just, there's nothing he can do. And then another outlaw, which I couldn't find the name of, just shot him in the chest because the guy wanted to become famous for killing what he called the ultimate coward. That's crazy. So that's before it just became labeled as a coward because he, sh- he literally shot someone in the back. Do you think if he didn't shoot him in the back, I mean, he's considered a traitor and shooting in the back has a, obviously a bigger connotation here too, but I'm almost curious if Ford didn't shoot him in the back, would he still be on the list of the greatest traitors in history? You know, like, well, I'm sure it's still be there, but it's also like, he, well, because Jesse James was such a... Yeah, he was an infamous, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. infamous. He was an infamous, he was infamous guy and this guy was part of his gang, right? So yeah. whenever I think you're betraying someone, betraying them for like financial gain, there's going to be some level of being like a traitor. Like yeah, if you don't agree with so. them and you switch sides, that's one thing, I guess, right? Change your yeah. heart, switch sides. You know, if you're doing it for financial gain, for personal gain, that's when I think what makes it like being a traitor. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Matahari, right? Matahari is uh, probably the most famous double agents, but yeah, she's she also a, a terrible one. one. <laughs> she was bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically, I think the reason why Matahari is is a big deal is because of like how exotic she was. She started off as this beautiful exotic woman and that seduced men of 
ultimately both Germans and French, right? During um, we're talking about like World War One time, like yeah. a little before World War One, and then through World War One. So she winds up having affairs. Uh, I mean, background, a little background. Uh, she was born into a wealthy Dutch family. Eventually, she marries an older guy. Doesn't work out. She divorces him, and then she becomes this exotic dancer. She, you know, as like a temple dancer from India. And then she basically turns to like striptease into like a theatrical form, and she becomes very known for it, at least in you know in the smaller circles. That you know, she's Matahari is like the the person you want to go see, and and she winds up having these affairs with wealthy French porters, and as well as a lot of German officers. So she starts finding out secrets from the Germans. However, the German officers that she sleeps with are kind of not trusting at they all. Don't, they don't trust her. They, they're, yeah. They're- so they start her. feeding her. They actually start feeding her like misinformation or old information. So yeah. that's why we say she wasn't a good spy, or she was not necessarily, a, you know, a good traitor because the information she was getting from the Germans was not really good. But now the French wind up intercepting messages from Germany that Matahari was also given information to the Germans about the French. So therefore, she's now seen as a double spy. So as opposed to helping the French, she winds up being arrested by the French, is thrown in a French prison, public trial, everyone wants to see her because she's this exotic dancer. She is actually sentenced to death for treason. And this is kind of interesting that when she's led to, you know, being shot by the firing squad, she refuses to wear a blindfold. And Tom, what does she do at the end? She blows them a kiss. That's right. Which I guess romanticizes a little bit. And then, and then, then, then they shoot her. 12, 12 men, people 12 shoot her. 12 men, 12 men fire shoot her. This is uh, 1917. Isn't so, that crazy? When World War One is going on. Yeah, well. And I she mean, looks at them she, and she blows them a kiss. All right, go for it. And then she's a spy. Well, that's what happens. You spy, that's what's going to happen to you. If we're talking World War One, I, I guess let's jump to World War Two. Vitkun Quisling, right? He was basically a Norwegian army officer who was in a cahoot based with the Germans during the occupation of, of Norway during World War II. And he joined the Norwegian army, a lot of duties there. He worked in, in Russia for a while with the League of Nations. He became Minister of Defense, right? Um, he took a um, strict stance against striking workers. Um, so he anti-union. He had some fascist leanings anyway. And in 1940, he made a paragraph. He actually met with Hitler in 1940, and he encouraged um, Hitler to you know, conquer Norway. Hitler would probably have done it anyway. Um, but he waited for the German occupation to become complete, appointed himself Norway's leader. And his reign didn't last much of, at, at all. It only lasted for a week before the Germans yeah. were like, we don't want you to be a leader. They just um, put in uh, basically their own puppet government there. Okay? I mean, this guy sold his entire country. Country, yeah. And, it, he, and he also like sentenced 1,000 Jews, yeah, yeah to, to concentration, concentration camps. Yeah. I mean, I can't even – I can't. Even, I mean, I'm not a Norwegian, but like if I was, I mean – this oh, he's guy, hated there. He has he's to hated. be the Benedict Arnold. I mean, he, he's, he's hated. So much it's worse than Benedict more. Arnold. Well, his, his name lives in infamy, and a Quisling became a synonym for a traitor or collaborator. Yeah. Like, that's what happens. And um, he's eventually found guilty of treason, executed in 1945. Like, you knew that was going to happen. That was obviously what happened. So he's not even in power that long. But he's one of those guys who just wanted to be in power, wanted to be in power. Does anything he does to get in power. So, again, you know, he'll, he'll team up with Hitler as long as yeah, he gets no, him what, what he wants to, yeah, he he wants to do. But what's interesting is like after he sold his nation, Hitler's like, yeah, no, you're not really going to be the real president. No, they don't, well, not they don't trust me. They just don't even like the guy. Yeah. Let's do Tokyo Rose. This is another one that people are kind of like, <laughs> are, were they a traitor? Were they not a traitor? Um, was this even Tokyo Rose? I guess there's some. I mean, this there, one right? was, right? I, I mean, Iva Toguri was, but she was by, by far not the only one. Yeah, there's more than one Tokyo Rose. Yeah, and we could talk about the fact that like how this she was kind of naive towards the end, and how she basically gave herself up because she needed money. And and you know we'll mention that, but I feel like whoever listens to this podcast has probably heard of Tokyo Rose. But the background here is very simple. So 
all American servicemen basically huddled around radios to listen to Zero Hour, which it was a radio program. It was a propaganda radio program by the Japanese radio in the Pacific. It was basically intended to serve as like a morale sapping propaganda. And it played known music at the time. It gave news from the front. However, the DJ of this particular radio program was a an American female. She actually never referred to herself as Tokyo Rose, nor did any of the Japanese radio stations. It was a nickname that basically came out of the GIs, American GIs, to sort of call her Tokyo Rose. And, and what she did is this woman had this husky voice, and she basically would just taunt the soldiers and, and kind of make jokes. And in this case, uh, specifically the main first Tokyo Rose, or Iva Taguri, in her court, later, you know, court trial later it came out, like she never really said anything that was like, go kill yourself. You know yeah, what I mean? It was more humorous, a lot of this stuff exactly. is what they were saying. And um, she, originally she took the name Orphan Anne. That was like yep. her original name. Yeah. Um, like the intelligence reports that she was not one person, but she was linked to this individual basically. And she was kind of like, um, all these people like wanted to interview her and she thought she was going to make money with this. Yeah. And um, she didn't realize, no, like, so she agrees to these interviews and she thought At she would be collecting fees. Yeah. But literally yeah. they just, they found her and then arrested her. Yeah. And it's kind of a and sad she, story. I mean, because you're right, yeah. she, she was broke after the, at the end of the war. And they're like, yeah, who's the famous Tokyo Row? We pay $2,000 to talk to you for an interview, like you said. And, and she's, she's like, and she's like oh, I'll do it. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Boom, in jail. But um, if you really like study this, so Ivor Taguri was obviously, uh, she was actually Japanese, right? She was uh, born out of, you know, her parents were Japanese immigrants. And they own a very small business in Los Angeles. And then she, what happens is this girl is like an all American girl, Girl Scouts. Uh, she plays tennis on her high school team. She later graduates from UCLA in zoology. Like she's American through and through, even though her parents speak Japanese at home. In 1941, her parents sent her a trip to Japan because their aunt was uh, was dying. And the idea was like, you need to go see your aunt before she dies. Well, she's 25 years old. She goes to Japan. And then within like a month, Pearl Harbor happens. And basically she gets detained in Japan. She can't get out. She's like, great. Like, what do I do? And, and as you know, she's an American. She was born in the United States. And what she winds up doing is like spending months with her relatives, you know, being harassed by neighbors and military police, basically, because they're like, well, you're an American. So she's not even like there. And she winds up getting a job in 43 as a typist at a local broadcasting um, radio Tokyo. And then when she's there, she meets this Australian military officer who was also captured in Singapore, um, Major Charles... Cosins, I think. Cosins, yeah. Cosins, right. And he was forced because he had radio background. He was a radio successful radio announcer before the war. Uh, he's forced to start this show Zero Hour for the Japanese radio. He actually picks her because he thinks that her voice doesn't sound sexy or feminine. He thinks that it sounds harsh. And even though they were doing propaganda, right, her and him, they're kind of making fun of it. Like they're trying to not make it too serious. And they're trying to make it in a sense like, you know, I'm not trying to remind you of your girlfriend back home. In their defense, the, you know, they're kind of working around the system here. But at the same time, I mean, it did taunt American soldiers every single day for hours at a time. What happens at the end of the war, as you mentioned, she, you know, she gets caught because she is broke. She's thrown out of the radio station. The Japanese are surrendering. And, and at that point, she winds up um, being actually arrested after this interview, she's thrown in jail, then... 10 years in prison. Well, that was the second time. The second first time she goes for a little bit, and then they let her go. And then she winds up being rearrested in 48 for 10 years. Yep. And this time they actually arrest her and they bring her to the United States. And she's arrested in the United States and goes to prison. The first time she's in prison in Japan under American occupation. 
And then they strip her out of her American citizenship, give her a $10,000 fine, and put her behind bars for the 10 years. She never stays 10 years. She stays six years. Um, that is released in 56. And she then gets pardoned by Ford. She does, yes. And so uh, it's 1970s. One of his last acts in office, actually, pardons her. She was 60 years old. Still considered, nevertheless, till the very end. She died in 2006 as, as a traitor. You know, this is a traitor in the United States that taunted American soldiers. But as we know, she was by far not the only Tokyo Rose. There was many. She was just the no, OG. She was the OG. The one that came forward, too. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's kind of silly on her part almost. But again, you know what? When you don't have money, you have to feed your family. You do what you got to do. Yeah, you do what you got to do, I guess. So speaking of what you got to do, what I do, I'm going to talk about this guy, also World War II related. But um, history sees this person with a difference. So again, you see this idea of how traitors, this guy is a traitor by the, by the definition, but history views him a little bit different. And that's uh, Klaus Scheck Graf von Staffenberg. Right? You've probably heard about this guy. Tom Cruise, um, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise nah. played him in the movie Valkyrie. So this is Operation yep. Valkyrie. And he was basically a German ar- army officer, and he was one of the leading members of the failed July 20th plot in 1944 to assassinate Hitler and move him from power when he puts the bomb in the briefcase by in the table. But unfortunately, the bomb gets moved really right before it goes off. And um goes off. It has injured Hitler, but he, he survives. Von Staffenberg is one of the central figures of the German resistance. Um, but he was involved in the movement and was executed by firing squad shortly after this. But um, yeah, but he he is a traitor by the definition. But again, history views him as very different. And maybe if you know if he would have been successful, a successful traitor as far as killing Hitler, history would really probably view him in a very different light. You know, right? I, I for some reason he didn't pop up in my in my search, but he should have. Absolutely, no, that's why we both do it. Did you see this one? And I feel like this would actually could be a podcast in itself. The Cambridge Five. Um, I did see the Cambridge Five, yeah. I started looking at this popped up on many lists that I was looking through, and then I started kind of Googling on the side and trying to look this up. But this was kind of a, a terrible thing for the British agencies, right? So the Cambridge Five, I mean, you have a womanizer that was married four times. You have this flamboyant gay man uh, that was also drunk. You have a famous art historian that's actually knighted by Queen Elizabeth II. Um, when you start looking at these people, these are all Cambridge graduates. And they basically penetrated the British intelligence agencies, MI5, MI6, right? And they started turning over secrets to the Soviets. And this happened. This really went through World War II, somewhat 1950s before they're, they're caught. But the main one of them was Harold Kim Philby, Donald McLean, uh, Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt, and John Karen, Karen Cross. I think Karen Cross. Yeah, these guys were like British elite, super known. And actually, it's kind of also messed up. They spied for Soviet Union, the communists. Not because they wanted to get paid, because these guys were the elite, like English. Yeah, they elite. had money. No, they just wanted to do it because they did it for free. They just wanted to spy. But they were convinced that Marxism was the best counterweight to the rise of fascism. That's what Crazy. their thought was. So they wanted that. That's what they needed to do, and they passed a lot of stuff. A lot hey, of atomic stuff. bomb, it's, atomic bomb weapons. Yeah, uh, atomic secrets, yeah. Tri- like all types of information. So much so that the Soviet Union, they're seen as like the one guy. Philby was actually honored on a postage stamp. So that's how like popular these guys were. They did severe damage. It caused the U.S. to actually uh, publicly question the competence of the British Secret Service. They're like, "How do you allow this to happen? Yeah. Like, how is how do you not vet these people more uh, more closely?" Because no one expected these you know upper class Cambridge University students to be Soviet spies. Yeah, and like not just in one agency. They they every possible agency. Yeah, and, and it was an amount of information that got it was severe damage to the United States and Britain. Um, yeah. About their intelligence was yeah, compromised. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, atomic bomb secrets in 41. Then even the Korean War strategy, that's one of the last things they did. They basically gave the entire 
uh, Korean War strategies to the communists of the United Nations Armed Forces. I mean, just again, crazy. But Philby's kind of the main guy. He winds up uh, finding out that these guys are about to go down and that the MI5 um, and MI6 are on their trail. So he warns the other guys to basically defect to Russia, which they do. And he does the same thing at the very end. Like right before they get him, he leaves. And eventually Margaret Thatcher like publicly winds up uh, sh- stripping the knighthood of one of the guys that was knighted. They all, they all, I mean, live in Moscow until their deaths. You know, it's kind of chilling. Um, Russia took care of him. The one I have here that keeps on popping up, the more modern one, Robert Hansen. We mentioned him a little bit at the beginning, but... Former FBI agent, right? And uh, Robert Hansen. Yeah. Um, later, he was a Russian intelligence officer. And um, he was he was eventually caught in 2001, right? Yeah, like I'm saying, maybe that's why I don't remember because 9-11 happened and it wasn't as big of a deal. But I, I would assume 9-11 would overshadow this. But this is this guy, Robert Hansen, is considered one of the most damaging double agents in modern American history. Like... He's like kind of Benedict Arnold of now. Exactly. For him, he wasn't killed. So he was captured. Basically, he um, it was all money. So he actually, yeah. he, like, there, he didn't have any ideologies. He didn't have any like feelings for the Soviet Union or anything like that. He was strictly for, they offered him a lot of money and they offered him diamonds. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. And he was responsible for, they said, probably one of the worst security breaches in U.S. history. Yeah. Um, but he's also responsible in the same thing with Oliver Kames, the same thing. They're doing it for money. But what they're doing is they actually give up a lot of the um, double spies that we have That's for us. That's messed up. Yeah, they so killed the so many Union, And they know it. See, it's a little bit different. I mean, according to these articles, we catch a double agent spy there and cor- they're thrown in jail for life. The Russians catch them, they put a bullet in their head. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit different. No, he, he gave up American spies that were operating in Soviet Union and later Russia when Soviet Union yeah. ceased. And uh, knowing they're going to be killed. Like, yep. it, that's, that's what you know is going to happen. But he didn't care. So even his human decency is just like... Nuts. Like people. So, yeah, people. Yeah. He, yeah. And thousands so, of pages he, of classified materials. Like if you study this guy, so it starts in 79 and ends in 2001. I mean, he spied for a long time. As a matter of fact, he spied so much that when he's finally caught, he's arrested. He literally looks at the FBI agent that's coming towards him right, with a gun. And he looks at him and he says, what took you so long? So he says in 2001, he was arrested. But uh, it starts in 79. And eventually he's discovered when the FBI gets a tip off from an ex-KGB officer that Hansen was a mole. But... Hanson is a church-going dude. He's a father of six. Like you said, he got paid like $600,000 in cash and diamonds at one point. Another point, he got paid $800,000. He volunteers to spy for the Soviets. Um, and he starts, one of the first things he does to kind of get himself in there is he informs the Soviets that one of their top generals, Dmitry Polyakov, was in fact a CIA informant and has been spying for America since 1960. And obviously, the Soviets quickly execute the guy. I should mention, too, that he worked for the FBI. That's how he knows his information. Forgot to mention that. So after that, in the 80s, his wife catches him with, like, suspicious-looking papers, and he admits to selling secrets to the Soviets. And she's like, promise you won't do it again. Like, you need to tell the priest. So he tells the priest. And the priest apparently tells him to donate all the dirty money to charity and stop doing it. So he stops for five years. But in 85, he resumes being, you know, the espionage activities. And this time, KGB again. He gives KGB names of three different Soviet officers that are collaborating with the FBI, I'm sorry, with CIA and FBI, and those three officers were right away executed. Meanwhile, back home, he's like rising through the FBI ranks, and eventually he works as a senior counterintelligence operator. So then in 1991, Soviet Union breaks apart, so he stops spying at first because he's kind of nervous. Like, now that Soviet Union is gone, like all, all the files can be released. Stuff, yeah. yeah. 
So then he winds up in 1989, he serves as the FBI liaison to the U.S. State Department. And that's when he basically resumes being a double agent. And now he spies for Russian intelligence service. And then essentially what happens is in 2000, FBI knew there was a mole in its ranks, just didn't know who. But they wound up paying $7 million to this former KGB officer to produce information with proof from the Soviet, intel- well, Russian intelligence headquarters to identify this particular law. And that's how they identify Hansen as the turncoat. I think he got sentenced to what, 15 consecutive life sentences? Yeah. Yep, he's yep, not yep. getting out, obviously. No. Again, there's yeah, so, so, many so, many, yeah, so many other ones. Like there's Jafar, not not one, the one from Aladdin, but other ones. <laughs> right? Jafar from- there's um, Jinguali. There's so many other like uh, ones. The Rosenbergs. Okay. Oh, how do we not talk about the Rosenbergs? Okay. Yeah, that's okay. We got it. Well, same thing. Nuclear, nuclear um, secrets to the Soviets. They both got killed. And there's yeah. information that came out that people said, no, they, they did do it. So they always have that information. Maybe we save the Rosenbergs for another podcast in the future. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so this is a, a nice little uh, you know, tidbit into uh, in talking about some traitors, famous yeah. traitors in world history. Yeah. And, and I hope Don't you be guys... one. Yes, don't yes, be yes. Yeah, don't be a traitor. True. But anyway, so if you ever hear someone say, hey, you're such a Judas, no one really says that anymore. But they do say Benedict Arnold. You, you will know what that. we're you talking about. Not in the young generation, I guess. But well, at some point, they're definitely going to hear about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On our podcast, obviously. Anyway, uh, for those of you guys that tune in every week, thank you so much. We do appreciate it. And if you need to contact us, you can do so at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Again, wherever you listen to this podcast, please feel free to leave a review. And uh, don't be afraid to shoot us an email with some suggestions. We're always open to, you know, getting some ideas. Uh, And I guess that's it for this week. So thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. And we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.